Welcome again today on this first Sunday in July. This is, uh, I believe, our fourth uh, Sunday in our Summer in the Psalms series. Uh, this is something that we do, uh, we have been doing we, uh, each summer where we spend time in the book of Psalms together. I appreciated our brother John a couple weeks ago mentioning how that, you know, the Psalms used to be one of the most familiar uh, books in the Bible for the church. Uh, they, in fact, because they were so familiar uh, with the Psalms, they were likely to be able to recall most of the Psalms to memory uh, because they spent so much time singing them uh, together. Uh, for us, that's been a new thing uh, to sing the Psalms uh, together, uh, straight, practically straight out of the text itself. And, and it's been a wonderful thing. And, and it's our prayer that through this time of devoting ourselves to the Psalms, that we would become more acquainted to this great book, a book that uh, Martin Luther said uh, that he loved the Psalms, Psalm 119 especially, that we're going through now. He said that he would not give up one page of it for all of the world. That's how important it was to him. Uh, we may have occasion later uh, to think about what we would give up, uh, not just for Psalm 119, but for the Word of God itself. But today, uh, we are going to be looking at the fifth and sixth uh, stanzas in this psalm, verses uh, 33 through 48, uh, which will encompass two, the next two stanzas in the psalm. And so I'm going to invite you now to stand. Open your Bibles to Psalm 119, uh, verse 33. We will begin reading uh, together through verse 48. At the end of that reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33. Let's begin. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law, and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at these next two stanzas, uh, the fifth stanza, uh, you may have at the top of that stanza in your Bible just a two-letter word that looks like he. We would say he in English, and it's actually Hebrew, and the word is heh. I don't know that that will ever do you any good, maybe in some kind of trivia, uh, but the word is heh. What's interesting about this word heh is that it is almost always attached to a verb and is used in such a way to say cause this thing, this action to take place. And so it has to do with cause. Now, think about that as you look at that stanza again. And what stands out to you about this particular stanza that the psalmist is writing? If we look, we see that immediately the psalmist is in a place of prayer because the very first thing that we see, uh, of course, we have to understand that he's in a place of prayer from the very first stanza uh, of this psalm where in verse 5 he breaks into prayer when he says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And, and so the, the whole heart and thrust of Psalm 119 is that of prayer. There's a sense in which we've mentioned before that it may be that this psalm, Psalm 119 being the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, never mind the longest chapter in all of the Bible, is likely something that was written over the whole course of someone's life. And so in a sense, there's almost a journal-like uh, uh, approach to Psalm 119, where you can almost hear the, the journal uh, entry of the psalmist uh, through these different stanzas as he is pouring out his heart to God and most of Psalm 119 is made up of supplications. Now, if you didn't know that, you might think he was trying to boss God around. Because you look at verse 33 and immediately it's like, hey, teach me, teach me, right? But this is not the psalmist trying to boss God around or command God as if, right? Uh, this is a supplication. This is a request. He is in prayer. And what is he asking God for? Immediately we see he's asking God to teach him, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And so immediately, uh, again, we go back to that verse 5 in the first stanza. What does he say? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Well, if my way is going to be steadfast, the only way that is going to happen, I'm going to use the word way a lot here, the only way that is going to happen is if my way becomes God's way. And so here he makes that request. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. In other words, Lord, let my way come into alignment with your way. And where does he ground that? How is he going to find that way? He says, in your statutes. And again, Joel was so faithful to show us these eight different words that are being used repeatedly throughout Psalm 119 that stand for different ways of expressing the word of God. And here he looks to the statutes of the Lord to show him the way. And he's saying like, look, 
God, if you will just show me the way, what does he say? I will keep it to the end. In other words, if you'll just illuminate the pathway for me, that's where I want to be. I'm going to stay in that pathway. Now, we have to consider, uh, was he going to keep it to the end? Likely not. The man who wrote this, likely not. But it was his desire. It was his desire to keep it to the end. But even though he was going to be unable to keep the way of God's statutes to the end, someone else was going to keep him to the end. And that's the one in whose, in whose way he was desiring to walk. This is speaks of the preservation of the Lord. And I love that in the preservation of the Lord, whether we speak of God's sovereignty, whether we speak of God's election, whether we speak of his preservation, uh, those doctrines, great and wonderful as they are, are not meant to lead us into a place of living a fatalistic life. Well, God's sovereign, so okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. I'm just going to sit back and just let life happen to me. There's nowhere in Scripture that we're called to that kind of an approach. Well, God's going to preserve me, so, you know, it really doesn't matter what my uh, desires are. God's going to preserve me. I can just do whatever I want. Again, there's nowhere in Scripture that uh, leads us to believe that that's the kind of approach that we should have in life. Instead, God's sovereignty, his election, his preservation are things, truths that ought to lead us into activity, not into laziness or this kind of lackadaisical, well, I'm just going to let life happen to me. And we can see here that he says, God, if you will show me the way of your statutes, I'll keep it to the end. Illuminate that path for me. Now, I believe that as he writes that, that there is perhaps a little bit of self-awareness in the psalmist. And if you look at what follows, you'll find that this stanza is made up of nine different supplications. Nine supplications concerning the psalmist's relationship with God's word. And he's making these requests. And I feel like they kind of bleed into or lead into one another because his heart is in the right place. And he says, God, if you'll just show me your way, I want to walk in it. It's, that's my desire. That's where I want to be. I'll keep it to the end. Just illuminate that path for me. And haven't we all been there? God, if you'll just show me the way to go, I'll go. Never mind that the world, the flesh, and the devil continually get in the way. But our heart is in the right place. We want to do the right thing. We want to walk in the right path. And the psalmist is there. But then look at verse 34. It's almost like he's like, well, wait a minute. It's one thing if the path is illumined. Uh, but I think I'm going to need a little more than that. Maybe, just maybe, the path being illuminated for me is not going to be enough to keep me on the path. And so God, I, I, yes, I, I need you. Don't, 
I'm not canceling out that first request, God. I'm not, I'm not, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to stack on. I'm gonna start to add on here a little bit. I, I need to, I need to add some things together here. So I don't just need you to illuminate the path for me, God. I also, I realize with some self-awareness that I'm, I'm gonna need some understanding. God, would you give me, look at verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Uh, my kids are amazing. I love them. They are, on the whole, generally, overall, at least at this point in time, pretty obedient kids. They've got a little bit of their dad in them. And uh, they, like me growing up, always had one question with every rule. Um, why? <laughs> Why, Dad? Why do we need to do that? And it is difficult. I will tell you, it is difficult. And I'm not saying this is not never the right response. Sometimes the right response is um, because I said so. <laughs> right? And, and there's many reasons why that could be the right response at different times. But it's probably not always the right response. And sometimes, what are they asking for? They're saying, Dad, I don't understand. That doesn't seem to be what I want to do. I'd rather do this other thing, but you're saying that I need to do this. Why? Why do I need to do that and not this? And there is parental opportunity to step into that and say, okay, listen, I'll tell you why. This is why you need to do it this way. And what happens? To a certain degree, having an understanding of why can be helpful to aid in our obedience because it helps us to understand why the boundaries are there and what might be on the other side of those boundaries. Uh, I'll give you a poor example of this. <clears throat> Growing up, my grandpa had a farm and he had cows and he had to keep those cows in certain pastures at different times. And at other times, he would lead them to other pastures as they finished uh, grazing in that particular pasture. And he did this by moving particular fences. And these fences were unlike other fences. I was used to barbed wire fences. I spent most of my childhood either you know, pulling them apart this way and slipping through or pressing them down together and stepping over. That was no problem. And, and no one seemed to tell me not to do that. It seemed an acceptable thing. I watched other people do that. But suddenly I was told, don't go across that fence. And that just didn't make sense to me because there was only one or two lines to that fence. That was the easiest fence to cross. I didn't even understand why the cows didn't get across that fence. And I asked why, and I was told because I said so. And that wasn't enough for me. That didn't make any sense. I needed understanding. Well, I got it on that day when I grabbed a hold of that fence and tried to cross over because it was an electric fence. <laughs> and from that day on, understanding aided in my obedience, right? Uh, unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way. But there are times that understanding aids in our obedience, but not all the time. And I think, again, there's some self-awareness in the psalmist as we go to verse 
35. And, and he's like, yes, Lord, I, this is where my heart is. I want to walk in your ways. I want to walk in that path. So if you'll just illuminate it for me, God, I'm going to keep it to the end. Did I put a period there, God? Let's put a comma. In fact, let's put a comma there because I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe I'm kind of, you know, I'm looking at my past history, my past record, and I'm guessing that maybe just having it illumined may not be enough. God, I need you to give me understanding as to why it's this path and not that path because this path is, is straight and narrow, but that path, and it's wide, and it looks like it goes to some cool places. I need you, God, to give me some understanding. Did I put a period there again, God? No, I... I think I need to put another comma. Because, Lord, even, even if that path is illumined, even if you give me understanding about why the boundaries are in certain places, I, I'm thinking that I might actually need you to lead me in that path. You see how we're making this progression? That his heart's in the right place, and yet there's this self-awareness and this understanding that just having the path illumined is probably not enough. Just having understanding is great. It's a help, but it may not be enough. God, I might actually need you to lead me in this path. I want to keep your law. I want to observe it with my whole heart. But God, I, I need you to lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. it. Again, this is truly what my heart desires. My heart of hearts. And you need to hear that because all of us struggle with that, that, that push and pull, that tug of war inside of us where there are times where I want what God wants, but I also kind of don't want what God wants. So when he says, I delight in it, you have to understand that the place that he's speaking of is that heart of hearts. That place that is uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's saying, God, I do want what you want. Yes, I know that tomorrow I'm probably going to wake up and there's still going to be this tug of war going on inside of me. But God, that's not really who I am. That's not really who I am. That's not where my identity is found. Going back again, Joel brought this up, but life of the Christian that is articulated in Romans chapter 7 and yes I will fight you on that it is the life of the Christian and not the life of the unsaved and I will fight you on that where Paul says what the good that I know that I ought to do that I want to do I don't do and the bad that I know that I shouldn't do that I really don't want to do and yet kind of sometimes do but not from that place of truest identity that's found in Christ, but in that place of the flesh, and sometimes I fall, I end up doing that instead. If, if you are here today and you think that you're the only one that's going through that battle, beloved, you are not the only one. That is my life. That is the life of everyone here in this building today, that tug of war between the spirit and the flesh. And this is what you need to understand. The enemy is going to try and come and say, you see that? See that? Oh, you wanted that, didn't you? That was shiny. That was, that was nice. You, that, that looks sweet, doesn't it? See that? You know why you want that? Because that's who you really are. That is the lie straight from the pit of hell. That is who you are were 
you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who you really are. That stuff is who you were. And the enemy loves to use nostalgia to try and pull us back to those places. And it may seem sweet for a moment, but it rots in your gut. And as believers, what do we do? We, we finally realize this, this was a mistake. That's not, this is not who I am. This is not what I really want. I want to delight in the path of God's commandments. Why am I here? Lord, you illuminated the path for me through your word. You gave me understanding through your word. But I, I need you to lead me as well. Well, as the old adage goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But what's the only thing that can make a horse want to drink? That the horse wants to drink. That's it. If a horse does not want to drink, it will not drink. And I've found that goes for just about every animal on the face of the earth. I tried to get my dog to drink the other day. He looked at me like I was the stupidest thing. I'm like, dude, you have to. I'm even trying to dunk his face in the water. He's just like, no, I don't. He's like pulling away and I don't want it. Right? Here's, here's the reality, folks. This is it. You and I will only ever do what we want to do. Period. End of story. That's it. That's why that tug of war between the spirit and the flesh is so important. That we need to feed the spirit and not the flesh so that our desire is for the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh. The more we feed the flesh, our appetite for things of the flesh will grow and the more the flesh will win as we say yes to those things as being the things that we want, even though they're not really. It's like being filled up on junk food. I will make a confession. I've had a busy week, more busy than normal. I have eaten four hamburgers this week. And not just ham, I mean double meat, double cheese, <laughs> saucy, just greasy. And the more I ate them, the more I wanted them. The more I ate those golden, delicious, salty chips, the next day it was like, man, remember? Remember those chips were really good yesterday. I think I want some more. That's the way the flesh works. I'm going to pay for it this week. Uh, but that's the way the flesh works, isn't it? And what do we need? The psalmist is here again with this self-awareness. God, I need you to illumine the path. I need you to give me understanding about the boundaries. I need you to, <laughs> it's not going to mean I'm not God. I actually need you to lead me. And here's what I know about myself, God, that if you don't actually work on my heart, if you don't actually work on my will, on my want to, then I'm going to pull you like a jackass the whole way. Because my stubborn and rebellious heart 
even though I've asked you to illumine the path, I've asked you to give me understanding, I've asked you to actually lead me. God, lead me. Why aren't you leading me? Lead me. God, why? And I'm, I'm pulling back the whole time. God, I need you, what does the psalmist say, to incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your testimonies. I actually need you to help me to want to. That seems like a tall order, doesn't it? But beloved, this is the work of the Holy Spirit on the life of the believer. It is the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in you and gives life to your mortal body. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is able to change your desires. You will only ever do what you want to do. And so the only hope that you or I have to actually come into a place of obedience to God is if the Spirit actually changes our desires. Because here's, here's this crazy thing, right? Even if I fake it outwardly, if my heart doesn't actually want it, it doesn't matter what it is. It could seem like the best thing that a human being has ever done on the face of the planet except give their life on a cross. It's still sin. It's sin. Because it's not about our performance. It's about what God is doing in our heart. The, the things that come from the overflow of a heart that wants to do what God wants, that's obedience. Not just outwardly going through the motions. And so the psalmist says what? Incline my heart. He, he comes with that much self-awareness. Incline my heart, God. You have to work on my heart so that I actually want what you want, which is why the next line is so important. What does it say? And not to selfish as the Spirit works on our heart and changes our desires, He is changing our desires to want what God wants instead of what the flesh wants. God, incline my heart. Verse 37. Okay, Lord, you've illumined the path. You have given me some understanding through your word. As I read your word, as I spend time in your word, I begin to see why the boundaries are there. I see why the blessing is on this side of the boundary and why the curses are on that side of the boundary. And yet, I still need you to actually lead me here. But if I'm not going to fight against you the whole way, I need you to actually incline my heart, change my desires. But Lord, even in that, I need something more. I need you to turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, the story of Lot's wife, as God has delivered Lot and his family from the destruction that he rained down in Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that had become a cesspool of every kind of disobedience that anybody could creatively come up with to go against God's law. 
And it's not just one or two things. It is everything. They, they turned themselves over to debauchery of every kind. And God in his kindness rescues Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Literally illumines the path. Walk this way. This is why destruction is coming. This is where you need to go. I'll walk with you, but here's the deal. What did he tell him? Don't turn back and live. And what did Lot's wife do? As they're leaving destruction, headed for rescue, her heart wasn't there. It was in what she left behind. And she turned. The Bible says that she was immediately transformed into a pillar of salt. Which means that even if that pillar dissipated, everywhere that that salt came down around the ground there would now be a place of barrenness. Because salted earth produces no fruit. And so for all time, right there in that spot, as a symbol and a testimony to what happens when we choose selfish gain instead of what God wants was barrenness in that place forever. So the psalmist says what? God, don't, don't leave me in death. Don't leave me in barrenness. Instead, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Life. But this only comes as my eyes are turned from worthless things. What are worthless things? Things in the King James, there, there would be a word that's used here connected to vanity. Things that are vain. Idols, distractions, temptations. Turn my eyes from worthless things. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. <laughs> idols are vanity. They're worthless. And yet our eyes are drawn to them. We, we look at the rest of the world. We look at, even as Solomon would do in Ecclesiastes, as he looks around and he says, man, God, what, what's going on here? These people that, that don't care about you, who don't pay you any mind, it seems like they're being blessed. Meanwhile, your people are suffering. What's the use? Is it all, what does he say? Vanity, chasing the wind. But the reality is that all of those idols and distractions and temptations lead to death and barrenness and not life and fruitfulness. And so the psalmist says, God, I need you to turn my eyes. Keep me from being distracted by these things. And, and this, this comes into play in our lives. In other words, what? 
uh, distractions are coming up, and what do you have to say every time one of these distractions or temptations come? You have to be able to say what? No. But the only way that you can say no is if you have a deeper burning yes inside of your heart. There has to be something else that you are prizing above those things, right? Like at some point this week, I'm going to have to say no to four double cheeseburgers, right? And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I actually prize something else over those cheeseburgers, like my health. <laughs> or uh, uh, anything else, okay? It's probably a bad analogy, but you get the point. In order to say no to something, you have to have a deeper burning yes. In order for your eyes to be turned away from a distraction, there has to be something else in your view that prizes, that is prized in your attention than these other things, Right? That's why when I used to run, the coach would say, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the finish line. In other words, what? It was only a distraction to turn and look at the other runners and see where they were. It was only a distraction to look into the stands and see who was watching. Keep your eyes on the prize. There had to be something that I was prizing above those other distractions to keep me not only headed in the right direction, but on the right pace. And so if our eyes are going to be turned away from worthless things, there has to be something else that is prized in our estimation above those things. And what is that for us? It must be that we would prize Jesus in our sight above all things. This is why the author in Hebrews would say what? Again, uh, he himself using a kind of uh, racing or running analogy. He says, let us therefore, in Hebrews chapter 12, strip away the sin and the things that so easily ensnare and entangle us and let us run this race with endurance. What God has set before us, he says, we do this by what? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And so if our eyes are going to be turned away from looking at worthless things, if we're going to have life by keeping our eyes on the prize, our eyes need to be set on Jesus Christ above all things. And so the psalmist begins to understand that he has to prize something above these worthless things. Verse 38, he says, he asks God to confirm to your servant, your promise that you may be feared. Promise that came from what? Came from his word, came from scripture, the promise of the covenant, the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head at some point. There would be a deliverer. And with the path illumined, with understanding about the boundaries, with God himself leading in his commandments and inclining our hearts, changing our desires, away from selfish gain and towards the things that God wants and 
having our eyes turned away from worthless and vain things by having them set on the prize, which is Christ alone, even still, even still, our hearts need assurance. In other words, what God, remind me what this is all about. Remind me of the promise that's on the other end of this path. Remind me that you are the, on the other end of this path. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. That's what's ahead. What about what's behind? What? Why? Why are we going down this path? I, I can't help with this language of path and way and and this journey to not think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. What is Christian? We know that Christian is running to the celestial city, but what is he fleeing from? He's fleeing from the city of destruction, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of that same uh, raining down of God's judgment. That's what he's running from. And as much as we need God to confirm his promise and remind us of what's ahead, we sometimes need to also remember what we're running from. That there's a reproach that is behind us. One that we deserved. And if we are drawn back to that place, we will only get what that reproach deserves, which is judgment. Turn away the reproach that I dread. God, I need you to remind me that that is not my home, but that is. That that's not where I belong, but that is. I fear I'm, the enemy comes. And again, what does he say? Oh, yeah. You like that? That's because that's who you are. That's because that's where you came from. That's because that's where you belong. But God has changed that for us by his grace through the redemption and the work of Jesus Christ. And that reproach that we dread because we know that that's what we deserve according to our own performance. We need to be reminded that we are no longer being judged by what we have done by what Christ has done for us. So he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Again, book ending this prayer where his heart is in the right place. It's what he really wants. He won't be able to do it. Praise God. There was one who would do it for him. In perfection. And it was Jesus. The only one who could say, Behold, I long for your precepts. And that not be hypocritical in the least. The only one that could say, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. I will keep it to the end. We have to remember, beloved, what Paul tells us 
in Philippians 2.12 and 13. He starts by telling us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if that's all that Paul said, that would be a fearful and fearsome text. But he goes on, and in verse 13, what does he say? He says, For it is God working in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, what? It's a recognition of saying there are times when I know what the right thing to do is. I even know that I could do it. But right now, I don't want to. I'm that stubborn horse. But Paul's letting us know that God is able by his spirit to work in our lives in such a way that even when our desire is lacking, he is able to change our desires. And even when we don't want to, he can give us the want to, the will. There are other times when we know what the right thing to do is, and we even want to do what is right. With the psalmist, we could say, our delight is in your rules. But I feel powerless to actually obey right now. And there's a million different reasons why that could be true. But in honesty, God, I, I feel powerless right now. I don't feel like I actually can do this. And Paul is telling us that God is not only able, but wants to work in us to show what he would say at a later time. That his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And he is able not only to give us the desire to do what pleases him, but to actually give us the power. What is God working in you both to will and to do, as do it actually, the power that is necessary to actually do what God has asked us to do. That could be something as simple as Bible study, reading scripture. We must remember that the Father and the Son did not send the Holy Spirit to us to make Bible study unnecessary but to make it effective. He did not send the Holy Spirit so that obedience would be unnecessary, but so that it would be effective, that he would work in us both to will and to do for God's good pleasure. And if you have come to faith in Christ by God's grace and the Spirit God is living inside of you and he will give life to your mortal body. The psalmist writes, I believe from a true place of desire and yet as we work through the text we find there is a self-awareness that says 
oh yeah, God, did I put a period there? Let's put a comma. I think there's a little more grace that I'm going to need from you today. What a beautiful thing it is to know that no matter how much grace is needed, our God who is rich in mercy is also abundant in grace. And no matter how much we need, he is able to provide. Amen? Maybe you feel like, hey, that's great, but Pastor, you just don't know how much I'm struggling to actually do what God wants. So much so that I'm not even sure that I actually want it at all. You have become self-condemned. I want to share this with you from uh, Charles Bridges' exposition of Psalm 119. He's talking about delighting in God's way. He says, but we must not be content with walking in this way. We must seek to delight in it. Again, he's saying kind of what I said. It's not enough to just do the thing. We have to want the thing in order for it to truly count. He says delight is the marrow of religion. God loves a cheerful giver and accepts obedience only when it is given, not when it is forced. He loves the service of that man who considers it his highest privilege to render it and whose heart rejoices in the way as a giant to run his race. Fervent prayer and cheerful obedience mark the experience of the thriving Christian. As a true child of Zion, he is joyful in his king. He loves his service. He counts in perfect freedom the rule of love, mercy, and grace. But listen to this. He says, but is the self-condemned, penitent, distressed by this description of a child of God? He looks and cannot find the same marks in himself he too hastily concludes that he does not belong to the heavenly family, not considering that his very grief is caused, listen to this, his very grief over not being able to actually do this is caused by his love to and delight in that way in which he feels he is so hindered, in which he daily prays, make me to go, O God. It was probably the same sense of weakness and inability to go in the path of God's commandments, which urged David's prayer. And if it urges yours, poor, trembling, penitent Christian, if it sends you to a throne of grace, you will before long receive an answer of peace and will also go on your way rejoicing. There are many of us that often feel hindered in the way. And it's the enemy who comes to condemn. The scripture tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is conviction, but there is no condemnation. And it is the kindness of the Lord which leads us to repentance. Amen? Amen. I want to just quickly share with you a few things. In the King James, when it says, give me life, there is actually an, uh, an idea of reviving. A sense of, I had life, I have it no more, I need you, God, to revive me. And Charles Spurgeon gives some ways that God often chooses 
to revive us. He chooses one to revive us through his own word, read, listened to, preached. And he says this, and I have to wonder if he was reading some popular fiction. But he says that as God chooses to revive us through his own word, he is uh, restoring to us the promises in his word that are so effectual that if they be but fed upon, they would make a dwarf into a giant in the twinkling of an eye. So if you can't quite get the picture with me, imagine Alice having tumbled through the rabbit hole, finds herself in this place where she is too uh, large to get through the little door, has to take a little nibble of something that shrinks her down, but then the key was up on the table. She had to, or she drank something, shrank her down. She had to eat something that made her grow up into this giant. And, and, and here Spurgeon is saying, that's how powerful the word of God is. That's how powerful the promises of God is, are. That no matter how puny you may feel right now, if you will apply yourself to the promises of God, you will find that the dwarf becomes a giant in the twinkling of an eye. There's something about the promises of God. Even as we come to Lord's Day worship and we're reminded of his grace, we're reminded of his covenant, we're reminded of his promises, that we leave this place with our shoulders brought back a little bit more, our head lifted a little bit higher, able to go out and face the day, singing in our hearts, even if we don't know the words, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Builds confidence. Confidence is what? Confide, with faith. It builds our faith to trust in our Lord who is with us and who has promised to provide every grace that is needed. Uh, Spurgeon also said that sometimes God chooses affliction to revive us. That seems odd, doesn't it? And he relates it to a spur being applied to the side of a horse where the horse is revived to go in the direction that they're meant to go by a little bit of a pinch from the spur. And sometimes God does that for us as well, does he not? That he gives us, he allows a jolt to come that quickens our mind and helps us to remember our need of him so that we will come running back to him. He also just revives us by his great mercy. Again, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance and his mercies cause us to live in a place of gratitude and action. He says also that Christian examples can revive us and Spurgeon was known to spend a great deal of time reading the biographies of faithful men and women, and I would encourage you as well that if you feel like I, I need something to encourage me in my own walk, that maybe you go and find a biography of a faithful man or woman and read that and allow their own journey and their walk with the Lord to encourage you. One of the things that you will find, one of the things you would find if you read Spurgeon's own biography, is that he was often troubled by depression. And here was this great man, this great preacher, and yet every day he had to get on his knees and ask the Lord to help him just make it through the day. 
That sounds depressing. No, that's encouraging. Why? Because I struggle with depression sometimes. And it's easy to believe that I'm the only one. Or not. Does anyone else feel it? Oh, maybe I'm... What kind of faith do I have if I'm depressed? You may have the same faith as one of these great men or women. Lastly, he says warm-hearted ministry can revive us. Again, this can be ministry that happens on the Lord's day. It can be also the, the ministry of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered around us in community. And he says to us that we should select not that which tickles the ear the most, but that which enlivens the heart. In other words, don't go to those places where they're just going to tell you what you want to hear, but rather apply yourself, your time, your effort, your energy to those ministers and those brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to love you enough to tell you the truth. Comma. In love. So that you and they may be built up into maturity into Christ, who is the head of all things. Amen? Amen. So here in this first stanza, we see this beautiful petition after petition after petition. We see that everything that is needful, God is able to provide through his word and through his son, who is the word of God. And we find that all of these prayers are not prayers that we look back and we say, wow, David, or whoever the psalmist might be. I'm really glad that you prayed that, man. It sounds like you're really a mess. You needed to pray those prayers. Rather that we look at our own lives and say, no, these are prayers that I need. I need God to illumine the path for me, and he's promised to do that. He'll do that through his statutes, through his word. I need God not only for you to illumine the path, I need you to give me understanding, and he will, through his word, apply yourself to his word. God, I not only need you to give me understanding, but I need you to actually lead me on this way, and he will through his word. But Lord, I need you to also make me want to, and it's by applying myself to his word that I begin to see that my desires don't match up with his desires, and the spirit who is living inside of me is able to quicken my mortal body and change my desires so that I know that they are in line with God's word. Or I can go over here and plug my ears and plug my eyes and pretend like I'm not accountable for it. But I am. I am. And God will change my desires. He can keep my eyes from looking at vain and worthless things like idols and distractions and temptations. But more than anything, what God wants to do in your life through his word is to bring life itself. What did Jesus say that he came to do? He said the enemy comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. What is that? That's barrenness. That's death. But I have come that you may have life, and that life more abundantly. Fruitful life. That's what God wants to do for you through his word. And it all comes to us through his grace. And that's the word for this second stanza, which we will spend a much briefer time in this morning. But I want you to just see something very simple here in the second stanza. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. First thing that I want you to see is that the 
steadfast love of the Lord must come to me. Because I'm not ever going to make it there on my own. That let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. And here's the beautiful thing, that God does not hang out salvation like a carrot on a stick that can never be actually attained, but rather he comes to us and brings salvation and steadfast love to us according to his promise, which means what? That if he has made a promise and he's kept that promise, he has proven himself to be faithful. God is faithful. And this is what happens when grace comes into our life. Notice, verse 41 says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. This is all of grace, a total work of God from beginning to end. The psalmist has done nothing for it. He didn't go find it. It came to him. It wasn't something he earned. It's something God gave. And not only did God give it, he gave it because he promised that he would. Verse 42 says what? First word. Then. Then. That's how it works. The grace of God comes into our life and then, then, we are able, by God's grace, through the help of the Holy Spirit, to do everything here that the psalmist says. He says, then, verse 42, I shall have an answer. Then, verse 43, uh, you will not take the word of truth out of my mouth. Then, verse 44, I will keep your law. Then, verse 45, I will walk in a wide place. And here's an interesting thing, is walking in a wide place. What is that? That is, that is the broadening of boundaries. That is freedom. That is liberty. And yet, that liberty is coming from a place of God's precepts, of his rules, of his commands, of his law. And yet it is in his rules, in his law, in his commandments that we're actually not finding restriction, but freedom. Why? Because that is where the place of joy is. That is where the place of promise is. God says, this is how I designed your life to be lived within this way, on this path. And when you're there, you'll find your life opens up. Because God is not a kill joy. He's a joy giver. And joy is to be found living your life in the way that God designed it, which is according to those things that match his character and his nature, his law. So verse 45, I then will walk in a place of freedom, this wide place. Verse 46, then I will speak of your testimonies. Verse 48, then I will lift up my hands in praise. These are words of devotion, but they're only things that can be done from a pure place when they are done after the grace of God has come into our life. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you lift your hands in praise. If the grace of God has not first come and awakened your heart and brought salvation to your life, it's all worthless and vain. And there are people who treat true religion 
and Christianity like one more vain idol. One more place of, of I'm going to do this and hope for the best. Instead of saying, no, God promised and he's faithful and he's the one that's going to do it and then I will. Then I will walk in this life of devotion. And all of this devotion is grounded in and rooted in what God is doing in the psalmist through his word. Verse 42, then I shall have an answer for I trust in your word. Verse 43, then I'll not have the word of truth taken out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. Verse 44, I will keep your law. Verse 45, uh, I will walk in a wide place. Why? For I have sought your precepts. I've found the boundaries and I've marked them out and I've realized that these boundaries for me actually represent liberty and freedom. I'll speak of your testimonies, verse 46, verse 47, for I delight in your commands. I will lift up my hands in praise, verse 48, for I will meditate on your statutes. Each one of these places of devotion are rooted and grounded in God's word. And what we will find is if we just try to do all the stuff apart from trusting in God's word and hoping in his rules and seeking out his precepts and delighting in his commands and meditating in his statutes, that our devotional practice will have no anchor. It will have no anchor. It will be like that dock in the lake that used to be tied down to the bottom that has broken off and is floating freely away further and further away. We must, we must root and anchor and ground our devotional practice in God's word, trusting in it, hoping in it, seeking it, delighting in it, and meditating on it then we will find true liberty and freedom that comes through loving and living in the way of God's word. Amen? Amen. I pray that you are encouraged today through these two stanzas of Psalm 119 that you will see in it the mercy and grace of our God who is able to work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So often, we have not because we ask not. Let us not think ourselves greater than the psalmist who poured out his heart in supplication, imploring God to show him the path to give him understanding, to lead him, to incline his heart, to turn his eyes from worthless things, to, to do the work that is necessary that we cannot do for ourselves. Find a God who is not only able, 
Beloved, hear me today. He's willing. He's willing because he loves you. 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 Turn to him. Pray. And ask him for these things. With full confidence. Because we've read it in his word today. And it's in his will to do it. Amen? Let's stand as we pray and prepare our hearts for a time of communion. Father, thank you for your word today, and I pray, God, that you would do a work in us by your grace, through your spirit, that you would cause us to want, to yearn for the things that we saw the psalmist asking for today. Perhaps they are things that we thought we had to do on our own and felt helpless to do it. Perhaps they are things that we know that we should want, but we feel like we don't. God, would you cause us to cry out to you today both the will and the power to do the things that please you, not so that we can earn, not so that we can perform, but so that we can live in that place of freedom and liberty that can only be found in your way, the place of hope, the place of joy. Do this, we pray, in us, in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.